Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 127, recorded on July 21st, 2021. The Cloud Pod drowns in the health lake. Good evening, Ryan. How's it going? Pretty good. How are you? Good, good. Uh, we had a little bit of a frantic last-minute uh, change in the host here because uh, Peter, our fearless co-host, uh, said, I have a flight. We're recording. And we're like, well, thank you for letting us know 20 minutes beforehand. And so, again, we went to Matthew Cohn. <laughs> Welcome back, Matthew. Yeah. Uh, with no prep, no preparation, just like last week. So if you were impressed with last week about his ability to just wing it, uh, he is going to do it again here for you for the amazement of all to enjoy. Uh, and so, but at least Ryan's here. You can mm-hmm. you can help uh, hold this down for all of us. And then Jonathan is still on vacation for one more week. Go to see him back, uh, bright and bushy-tailed, as always. Here, basically, what I've learned is I don't have a life, so they just call me whenever they need help. <laughs> so I'm here. I am. Well, uh, I mean, we really do appreciate you coming. Maybe the dog won't be barking this time, but we'll find out. Yes. Maybe I don't know. Yeah. I mean, our listeners might not know anything about that because if our editor edited it out, then uh, they'll never know. But if they didn't, then <laughs> yes, they may enjoy the, <laughs> the sounds of puppy once again. Well, the- luckily today she we were at a friend's house for a little while, so she ran around. So she should be dead exhausted, but we'll find out. Okay, well, we'll see. Well, if she doesn't get too exhausted, uh, Amazon has a new Amazon Health Lake where you can upload and stream all of her health data uh, and have it be HIPAA compliant, which is pretty nice. Uh, of course, the Health Lake was announced uh, previously at reInvent uh, back in November, uh, but they didn't really have a lot of details other than it'd be a HIPAA eligible service. Uh, you know, we talked about some of the things they could do with ML and AI in the space. And so, you know, things that we said they were going to do, they did. So this allows uh, your healthcare company to use ML to understand and extract meaningful medical information from unstructured data and then organizes, indexes, and stores that information in chronological order. The service leverages the Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resource, or the FER, standard uh, to further enable interoperability by facilitating the exchange of information across healthcare systems, pharmaceutical companies, clinical researchers, health insurers, patients, and more Amazon Health Lake uh, services uh, about the box. Uh, this also supports partners, so your partners can help you get enabled all on top of the uh, FER protocol as well as the Amazon Health Lake, which is great. Uh, this is a fully managed AWS infrastructure service, and so you don't have to procure, provision, or manage a single piece of IT equipment because that's what you go to the cloud for. So thanks for pointing that out to us, obviously, Amazon, in the press release. We always appreciate that. And creating a new data store only takes a few minutes. Uh, once the data store is ready, you can immediately create, read, update, delete, and query your data, and HealthLake exposes a simple REST API and SDKs and all of the favorite languages of your healthcare business. Uh, all data by default is encrypted with KMS, either using an AWS managed key or your own key. There you go. That's a that's a pretty nice uh, service out of the box. Indeed. I I mean, how how hard is it for you to remain not smug for your you know call out for verticalization taking over everything this year? Uh, it's pretty hard. It's pretty hard. I can tell you right now, I mean, especially considering one of the announcements this week went along with this was introducing the AWS for Health practice <laughs> inside of the partner network. Uh, and, you know, a bunch of new self-paced workshops for getting it started with your health at, uh, stuff on the website, uh, et cetera, as well as self-paced workshops for all that stuff. But uh, yeah, uh, I was pretty pleased to once again see another special AWS for Health offering uh, out there in the wild, which is great. Yeah, I have a couple of customers that I sent this press release over to that are all very excited. They have no idea how they want to use it yet, but they're very excited to figure it out. 
to do something interesting with this. So I'm really curious how people actually start to, you know, play with this and figure out how to use it to be beneficial for their companies, um, especially with some of the SageMaker integrations. Um, you know, a lot of our customers are looking at, you know, ML, AI, because it's the biggest thing in the industry right now. And, you know, it'd be interesting to see how they can integrate these pieces together. Yeah. Well, I mean, to, get, you, to be able to use SageMaker or any of the ML tools, you have to basically import the data into HealthLake and then export the data into S3. Uh, so, you know, it's a little bit of a two-step process. I wish there was just a native SageMaker plugin, but that is not quite there yet. Uh, and I don't know if that's a fur issue or that's just a SageMaker capability problem, but I assume that we'll see more in that area in the future. Um, I would recommend for your customers that they do check out the pricing for this, uh, as it is, uh, at least on the surface, seems maybe a bit expensive for me. Uh, first of all, the data store costs you about 27 cents per hour, uh, which includes the first 10 gigabytes of data storage. And then for every additional 10 gigs of data storage, it's another 25 cents. So you know, if you're talking about terabytes or petabytes of data, this can get pretty expensive pretty quickly. Uh, you're paying for your query capacity, uh, 50, uh, basically a penny and a half for every 10,000 queries per hour. You're paying for the natural language processing of this data to actually you know, can validate that the data meets the compliance and all the different uh, healthcare standards. Uh, that costs you one hundredth of a penny per 100 characters. And then the FER data export costs you 19 cents per gigabit export. So you know, this could get pricey. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. Uh, you know, I assume the data, the healthcare data could be very large in some cases, especially if you're dealing with like medical imaging. Um, so I do recommend uh, taking out the spreadsheet and working through some of these models because I think it may get pricey. But it's healthcare, so yeah. it's, a, it's a drop in the bucket. <laughs> yeah, I kind of like on their examples on their website, you know, on Amazon's webpage where they do the, you know, they always give you the couple examples there. You know, the first thing is data store hours of, you know, 194 you know, by the time you do the 24 hours by 30 days, you know, by the 27 cents, it's like that just should be given to you. I can't imagine anybody really spinning up a data store for, you know, three, four hours for a data lake and then dropping it off. Like this should just be a given amount that they give you kind of like, you know, S, uh, SFTP transfer families. It's like people are just going to run this forever. Like I can't imagine people spinning up these services for, you know, two, three hours or two, three days. And dropping them. And if they are, they're not looking at the pricing. They're like, okay, we need a solution quickly. Let's just do it and move on and then delete it after. But if you're doing a data lake, you know, of any sorts, how are you, do you do it for a couple hours? Yeah, you, you can't. A data lake is going to be on forever. Well, that's where, you know, savings plans would be great for these kinds of things uh, to help you basically, you know, get a better cost for those services you know are going to keep up and running, especially SFTP transfer family products. Those are a great one. I think also are missing out of savings plan. So um, there's a lot missing there. Um, so, uh, you know, expanding on this AWS for health here, uh, there is a, a mention of what the products are for the health family. So first of all, there's the health lake, which is great, which is the refer compatible thing. And then all the HIPAA eligible services uh, that Amazon already has, which is, you know, several of uh, the big ones that you all know and love. And then uh, they have some health-specific services such as Comprehend Medical and Transcribe Medical. Uh, so slowly, slowly verticalizing their offerings. Love it. I wonder if they're going to end up doing a savings plan just for the healthcare suite like they did for, they have a SageMaker savings plan. So I wonder if they're going to do the same here or I would hope they just integrate it all into one savings plan, but we'll see what they end up coming with. I hate that SageMaker savings plan. I wish that was just one savings plan type. Like the fact that we yeah. now have, you know, complexity again, whether we're trying to simplify all that with savings plans just annoys me to no end. So. Yeah, agreed. But yeah, I hear you. I, I, you know, something's better than nothing. But I also think if you're a big healthcare customer, you're probably uh, on an enterprise discount program of some sort with special pricing for most of these services anyways. Um, but, you know, 
Well, for services uh, that other people can use other than healthcare, uh, so are all our other listeners, uh, there's a couple of new capabilities if you're looking for some fast, fast disk. Who doesn't love some fast disk? And so Amazon at reInvent announced a preview of the EBS IO2 Block Express volume, uh, which is the next generation of server storage architecture that delivers the first SAN built for the cloud. Block Express is designed to meet the requirements of the largest, most IO-intensive mission-critical deployments of SQL Server, Oracle, SAP HANA, and SAS Analytics on AWS. And now with the general availability of the Amazon EC2 R5B instances powered by AWS Nitro, uh, they now provide the best network-attached storage performance available in EC2. Uh, So good, in fact, that it provides you 4 gigs to 64 terabytes in size for each EBS volume, with a maximum IOPS of 256,000 IOPS per second and 4,000 megabits uh, per second of throughput, which is very fast compared to the other options uh, available to you. This is all enabled through a dedicated Nitro card uh, that's available to you in the R5B instances, and so it's only available in the R5Bs. Uh, so do keep that in mind. Uh, I can give you a quote here from uh, Mylon Thompson Bukovec, Vice President of Storage at AWS. Uh, he needs a lot of uh, storage for that name. That is quite long, by the way. I don't know. Knows that. <laughs> for decades, customers <laughs> who wanted to get the most performance for their throughput intensive workloads were forced to use an on premise SAN, which is not only expensive, but also complicated and resource intensive to manage. IO2 Block Express volumes are a game changer. Customers can scale their capacity by petabytes in minutes at as low as half the cost of a typical SAN, and storage is managed by AWS with the same or better performance than many leading SAN storage products without the hassle of procuring, scaling, and maintaining an on premise SAN can really tell this is built for, you know, very specific use cases, uh, you know, especially calling out, you know, Oracle and SAP HANA, you know, who are just notoriously high IO uh, intensive workloads. I was lamenting that I don't have something that could utilize this much IO throughput. I think that's a blessing and a curse. Like the nerd in me wants to play around, but then I imagine if I really had a use case where I needed this much throughput, I'd probably be stressed out. Not enjoying life. <laughs> yeah, because your PIOPS bill would be quite high. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this, this uses the exact same PIOPS model of pricing. So, you know, if you thought the old IO2 uh, max out on IOPS was expensive or PIOPS was expensive, this is going to be even more expensive because it goes even higher than that one did. So, definitely something uh, to keep in mind as well. Yeah, I don't remember if I found it particularly expensive or if it was just a matter that it was, you know, allocated and never utilized. So, therefore, it seemed wasteful. I can't remember. Yeah, I feel like most of the customers we have that, you know, and, you know, just going through a bunch of ideas and whatnot that really require, you know, IOPS or PIOPS um, along the way, most of the time never actually leverage them. And when I look at their bill, I'm like, you're not utilizing them. Why don't you just switch to GP2 and get the first bill or now GP3? So I feel like these are very specific use cases where you need them um, versus, you know, if you do need them, great, there's an option. But GP2, GP3, I feel like really does, you know, stand up to its name, general purpose, and really does meet 90% of the options out there. Yeah. I mean, the, peer, the people who disagree with you are all the database administrators listen to our show. Mm-hmm. We're all screaming yeah. at you right now saying, no, 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 we need the IOPS because we need to be able to do queries fast, fast, fast. Yeah, but uh, I have charts and metrics that say otherwise, especially for database workloads, because I have to have that argument all the time. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, it, it definitely would be nice if there was more burstable options, uh, you know, beyond even what's currently in the GP2 burstable. Like, you know, hey, I like to, I'd like to be able to burst up to this specific amount uh, if I need it, but I don't want to pay for it all the time. You know, it'd be nice. There could be some options, some flexibility that could get to us there. Maybe in the future they would, but uh, yeah, I think it's good to have options uh, first of all. <laughs> but uh, you know, how this evolves will still be TBD. 
but uh, mm-hmm. definitely interesting to see what this uh, this B class instance uh, ends up doing for us here in the future as well. I feel like we're also just adding complexity to every single instance type now because now we have you know what is it? You know we have the R five B, we have the C five M, we have the C five D, we have the C five D N. Yeah. Don't quote me on that one. No, you're, no, you're so now close. we're going to add B <laughs> to everything. I, I was trying to load EC2 instances.info, but I couldn't load it fast enough as I was trying to say what I was talking about <laughs> to figure out all the different ones. But well, and then they yeah. got they got complexity because they added AMD processors. So they had a bunch of A-class processors. And then they had ARM. So you have a bunch of ARM stuff, um, which you had to know that the, the, C, G. You know, the C6G is basically ARM. And then I heard they're coming out with a C6i, which will be the Intel version of the C6. Um, so yes, you're going to need to start getting a, a, a Rubik's uh, cube to basically answer, you know, what is this instance actually and why do I care about it? which of these letters matters to me? Uh, you know, which is it's just sad because it used to be so simple and we used to make fun of how ridiculous things like Azure's naming convention is and Google's uh, and AWS is rapidly catching up to all of them with the complexity of their naming convention too. Did you know there's a C6GN? I did, I did. not even know that. I did. It's the Graviton. It's an ARM processor with ARM. a 10 gigabit networking. So. Yeah. Yeah. Good to know. Good to know. I haven't had a use case for that yet. I mean, at least they standardize the letters. So, like, you, if you figure out what all the letters mean, then, you know, it should be relatively easy to figure it out and reverse engineer it. But then you have, like, the I and F ones and the F ones, and you're like, I don't really use those ones that often. So where does it kind of map to everything? Yeah, the I for the inference uh, stuff for mm-hmm. ML. Yeah, but you know, this actually, this B actually is somewhat confusing because um, I believe you used to have to, to provision the the DN to get the networking throughput to actually support the throughput of the of these higher PyOps volumes, anyways, right? Because that was a big limitation for you. So you you basically implement the DN to get the ten gigabit networking to get you the fastest throughput to the disk, so you could actually use the PyOps you were paying for. Um, and so, you know, that was part of the equation. But now the B replaces all of that complexity of the DN, but the DN still exists. So, you know, it's not quite as clean as it could be. So there are some confusion now on the storage side in particular, um, mostly because of the idiosyncrasies of network attached disk uh, versus yeah. sanitized disk. It's a balance, right? You have to have all the options to keep your customers happy because there's always that one workload that doesn't quite fit this instance type and you want the special one. And that's why they come up. You know, with as many as they do, you know, you know, barring, you know, or including that the technical advancements of the underlying infrastructure. But then there's, you know, there's nine times out of 10, you just need one of the C series and just call it a day. Yeah. By default, there's a C. U series. Yeah. U dash six T TB one, one twelve XL. I don't know what I want. I don't know what to use it for, but I really want to spend fifty-four dollars and six cent, sixty cents an hour to do something with six terabytes of RAM and a hundred and four hundred forty-eight cores. So you uh, you need to get on some SAP HANA projects, and you'll get to use that. Oh, okay, I would rather avoid that. But purpose, thank you for purpose offering. built for HANA. <laughs> okay, so I must have missed the cloud pod where you guys discussed that one, but I will uh, avoid that the as much pod, as I can. Actually, but it's, they've always the U class has always been either Redshift related or uh, SAP HANA related, uh, in my experience. Uh, okay. But then the Redshift actually has a different naming convention on top of this, as well as RDS also has a different naming convention on top of this as well. So again, it's just complexity everywhere. Uh, <laughs> Don't forget Elasticash. Oh, that's right. And Elastic has no types, which are different. Uh, so yeah, so let's, let's move mm-hmm. on to EKS, where you know there's nothing but confusion and uh, <laughs> complexity. 
complexity. No complexity in Kubernetes. <laughs> None. That's whatsoever. Well, uh, I will have to say that uh, Amazon has finally delivered on what I consider to be a very rapid push uh, of Kubernetes releases out to EKS. Uh, so back in May, which was episode 118, and this is 127, so that's only nine episodes uh, have passed since they released support for 120. They're now supporting 121, uh, which is pretty great for both AWS and the EKS com- uh, community. Um, you know, because I don't know that you necessarily want to be on 121 yet. It's still pretty cutting edge. But the fact that it's available, if you want to start experimenting with it, I think that's great. Uh, and nice to see Amazon you know, finally delivering on that promise of faster releases of uh, upstream versions of EKS and Kubernetes. So I'm super glad to see that. Uh, with the one to one release, uh, AWS is now making available to you container D. Uh, as part of 1.2.0, they started removing Docker Shim, so you might be getting warnings in your logs about Docker Shim being deprecated soon. Uh, that is coming in 1.2.2 uh, per AWS. They will actually deprecate uh, Docker Shim and move you to Container D. Uh, but they want you to test that beforehand, so they're giving you a new uh, user data runtime command, uh, dash dash container dash runtime container D to allow you to start experimenting with that now to make sure your workloads move over just fine uh, before they force you to in 1.2.2. Uh, and all of their container images uh, specialized built or optimized for EKS are up to date uh, with the Container D runtime, and you can install Container D versus Docker, uh, which you used to have to do some a uh, little bit of uh, repository monkeying uh, to get that to work prior. 1.2.1 has uh, several new enhancements for you. Uh, first is cron job improvements. Uh, this is particularly important to you if you're using Fargate for batch. Uh, this basically allows the system to terminate pods after a TTL expires, uh, which is great because on Fargate, if you don't do that, you will actually have a Fargate EC2 instance running in the background. Amazon's managing for you, of course, but uh, you're paying for it, even though you're not running any workload. And so do look at configuring that uh, for those Fargate use cases. The next one is the graceful node shutdown, which is a new beta feature, which allows the Kubelet to block a node shutdown until all pods have been given a chance to gracefully shut down, uh, which is apparently helpful for node termination requests that originate outside of Kubernetes. So if you want to sudo power off uh, from the command line, this now allows your containers to gracefully shut down before uh, kicking all of your services offline. So that's a, that's a nice safety net, uh, as always. They're also now supporting IPv4 and IPv6 dual stack, uh, which allows your pods to use both addresses at the same time. And this does depend on the container network interface being used to do that. The Amazon VPC CNI plugin does not support the dual stack yet, though. So if you're using that, you will not be able to support dual stack. Uh, because if right now, they're focusing on enabling IPv6 uh, in a single interface configuration, so pods can take advantage of IPv6 addressing, but still route to IPv4 endpoints. Uh, that will be probably changing in a future release. Uh, but for right now, if you want to do this, you need to get off of the Amazon VPC CNI and use the Kubernetes CNI default uh, to get that done. Next up is the immutable secrets and config maps. Uh, this is now makes it possible to mark config maps and secrets as immutable in the Kubernetes API. And this is helpful when trying to migrate new apps which require config map changes. By using config maps and secrets, you can guarantee they are not changed and each deployment version has a config that matches it. And then they also now support the cluster autoscaler priority expander for managed node groups, uh, all natively from inside of uh, Kubernetes, which is pretty great. And then uh, they are deprecating a couple of features that you should be aware of, uh, including pod security policies are going to be deprecated uh, around Kubernetes 1.25. They started the, the deprecation process now in the 1.21 release. Uh, this will be replaced by something new in the future, uh, although they don't have that available to you quite yet. Uh, so if you are looking for that, you just should check that out. <laughs> Those are lots of great uh, gatekeeper solutions to help you get this done in the interim. And then topology keys, which was an alpha feature in Kubernetes, uh, but never available in EKS, is also being deprecated and replace the new alpha feature called topology aware hints and Amazon then 
points out that this is why we don't include alpha features because they don't always make it to production. And so uh, if you want to use these, you have to use these natively in Kubernetes, not in EKS. Yeah, I'm sort of surprised they offered any of those. Um, it's kind of interesting to deprecate it if it wasn't really offered, but um, yeah, it's kind of, I get it. It's a very complex ecosystem and it's getting more complex day after day. If you think just about this release, like, you know, there's certain features that require CNI. There's other ones that, you know, rely on custom resource on the back end. So it is, you know, if you were a Kubernetes engineer, you know, you, you won't run out of work anytime soon. <laughs> no, never a dull day in the Kubernetes space. No, I mean, I consider Kubernetes, for lack of a better term, its own cloud. There are so many, you know, features and aspects to it that really need somebody that knows the ins and outs, just like you can have an AWS SME, a GK, you know, Google Cloud um, SME, a Azure SME. Like, it's essentially its own little cloud with all the features and pipelines and everything else you can do within it. You know, it's its own beast in and among itself. And I think just seeing the features that get released and deprecated before they even get out, you know, are is just case in point. <laughs> I thought somebody was going to mention how Amazon actually sped up the intervals. I, I did. That was the very first three minutes of, the, of what I talked about. <laughs> oh, I, I zoomed out for a second there. Sorry. <laughs> I was like grabbing water. It's nine. It's almost ten o'clock. Come on, guys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so we're talking about that. You know, they're only they're only uh, nine episodes since the last release one two zero, which okay. I measure all time in weeks of CloudPod. Uh, so yeah, so I, I think they're doing pretty well. You know, compared to what they used to do. So yeah, it's nice to see them finally deliver on the promise to accelerate their uh, adoption of the new versions of Kubernetes. I'll be curious to see if they just maintain you know those three releases like they're currently doing. I think Google's doing the same, where they're just maintaining the three releases. I'm curious to see if Amazon, as they speed up the intervals and get them in faster, if they're going to actually keep maintaining just three or if they're going to expand to like four or five at one point. I, I would like to see them kind of do the same thing Google did where you can get an early access channel to access them versus what they consider the stable version. Um, so you can make that choice versus you know, just have to know that. But uh, you know, eventually, I'm sure Amazon will get some of those features in as well. Well, your existing clusters don't get automatically rolled over, so it's just the ability to deploy new ones with an older Kubernetes version. Yeah, but I mean, you're kind of forced into the support model to always be rolling, right? So you you accidentally roll to one two one, not knowing that it's pretty bleeding edge. You know, it'd be nice if it was just like, oh, I want to I want to roll to the next stable version, which is one two zero or one one nine, whatever that may be, from my old version. I think that's a more ideal scenario. Yeah. I just wonder if it's going to be like RDS, where like they send you an email saying, "Hey, my SQL five five is actually going to be deprecated on our platform. You have to upgrade to five six. Yeah, maybe. Uh, I haven't run a Kubernetes cluster on Amazon with EKS to know, but I assume that they reach out eventually. Like at some point, when you're out of support for so long, or when you call in support case and say, "Hey, I'm using EKS one dot one four, and they're like, "Oh yeah, sorry, that's not supported. <laughs> you should probably upgrade." <laughs> Well, we talked. I actually think I think you might have been here, Matt. We talked about Google CAS a few weeks ago. I was, uh, which was about uh, Google integrating their uh, certificate authority with Kubernetes using the Cert Manager, and AWS has followed suit by integrating the Cert Manager with the AWS Private CA. Uh, the open source plugin for Cert Manager offers a more secure certificate authority solution for Kubernetes containers. 
Uh, Cert Manager is a widely adopted solution for TLS certificate management, and customers who use Cert Manager for app certificate lifecycle management can now use this to improve security over the default Cert Manager CA, which stores keys in plain text and server memory. Boo. With this plugin, Cert Manager requests TLS certificates from the AWS Private CA, and the AWS Private CA is a highly available, auditable, and managed CA service that secures CA keys using FIPS-validated HSMs. Uh, the integration supports certificate automation for TLS and range of configurations, including at the ingress, on the pod, and a mutual TLS between pods. Uh, and this can also be used with EKS, of course, but as well as self-managed Kubernetes on EC2 or on your on-premise Kubernetes environment, which makes things much simpler when trying to deal with uh, on-prem hybrid uh, Kubernetes clusters. Yeah, I was super excited for that last little bit, just because how annoying would it be to have to use two different certificate authorities or, or two different patterns for managing certificates across you know, different Kubernetes workloads. Um, so this is, that's a nice little feature. And it, you know, like we said, that's part of the ecosystem of Kubernetes. Um, you know, these plugins are, are plugins, exactly that. And they're not specific to EKS. And, and you can roll those integrations out and it's all just custom resources under the hood. So this is fantastic. Totally agree. Let's uh, go take an ad from Foghorn Consulting. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod foghorn the promise of cloud delivered moving on to google cloud uh big busy busy week in the google cloud space uh which is always great first up is a new region in delhi uh, the Delhi NCR, or Delhi National Capital Region, uh, is now widely open to you and is now the second region in India, as well as the 10th region in the APAC uh, area or Asia Pacific. Uh, so if you're using Google and you need a DR solution built inside of India, this is now available to you, as well as enables all the other multi-region capabilities that you may need in that region. So overall, pretty positive. Uh, you know, typical Google Cloud services are available there, uh, instances, BigQuery, et cetera, all available to you natively in Delhi day one. Ten regions in APAC is pretty high, right? That's Ten seems pretty, like a lot. It's a good number. That's awesome. Yeah, I think the redundancy inside of India is going to be key for them, just like a lot of the other cloud providers are kind of doing is the redundancy within these you know, mega countries you know, where, they re- where the compliance regulations are very strong there. So they have to keep all the information local. Yeah, so looking at uh, AWS, they have six regions, not counting the two China regions, which I don't count. Uh, so they have six regions versus ten, and then uh, you know two China regions. Which I don't know if that ten number includes China for Google or not. But uh, Google hasn't had a great relationship with China, so I'm actually not sure what their situation is at all uh, in that regard. <laughs> it's just one of those that I haven't kept track of. Let's see if I can get you a. Uh, See if I can get you an Azure answer without having to go through twelve thousand websites, which is always a challenge. That's on the Azure Premium console, right? So they have uh, let's see, Asia Pacific. They have one. They have Hong Kong and Singapore. Australia, they have three. India, they have three. 
Indonesia, they have one. It's coming soon. Japan has two. Korea has two. Malaysia has one coming soon. New Zealand has one coming soon. And Taiwan has one coming soon. So I didn't, I didn't keep track of what I said. but I lost count. count. It's way more than 10. It's way more than 10. Yeah. <laughs> Some of them aren't there yet. Right? Taiwan, New Zealand, Malaysia, uh, those are not there yet. And Indonesia is not there yet either. So, uh, But two, two, that's four. India had three, so that's, that's uh, seven. Australia had three, so that's 10. And then two more in Hong Kong and Singapore. Yeah, so yeah, they're at 12. And then three more coming online. Plus, China has, geez, wow, one, two, three, four, five regions uh, in China. So, Asia's uh, quite aggressive there in that market. Yeah. Uh, four, four online with one more coming soon in Hebei. So, there you go. So, purely for comic relief, I decided to look at what Oracle's was as Justin was going down the Azure route. It turns out there's eight in APEC. Japan East, Japan Central, South Korea Central, South Korea North. Australia East, Australia Southeast, India West, India South. Wow. All right. Pretty sure three of those, though, are in a utility closet in the back of a yeah, Taco Bell. Garage so. I just thought they were in a moving truck so they could, you know, just drive it between <laughs> South and West every time. That's their Israel plan we talked about. Well, yeah. Our, yeah. If you're building a data center in Israel, we're just going to put it on a truck and we're going to drive it around. So. All right. Next up, uh, you know, talk about verticalization of healthcare, which Azure and uh, AWS are beating up. Uh, Google has done a lot of verticalization for gaming companies, uh, with another announcement this week with a partnership between uh, Embark Studios and uh, Google with the open source UDP proxy built for game server communications. Uh, traditionally dedicated game servers for real-time multiplayer games have used bespoke UDP protocols for communications and sync of gameplay among players within the game. This is often bundled into monolithic game servers and clients. Pairing the technical functionality of communication protocols such as custom network physics, synchronization, security, access control, telemetry, and metrics with an extremely high set of computational requirements for physics, simulations, AI, and more. Uh, this collaboration with Embark is the new Quicken uh, UDP proxy tailor-made for high-performance real-time multiplayer game with two goals. Pull the common functionality such as security, access control, telemetry, and metrics out of monolithic dedicated game servers and clients and provide this functionality in a composable and configurable way so that it can be used across a wide set of multiplayer games. Uh, so if this is Amazon's press release, it would be undifferentiated heavy lifting, <laughs> which is what they're trying to solve for you. Uh, this solves some security issues and availability challenges that most game servers are dedicated, single points of failure, and because it's UDP, typically public and exposed to the internet directly. By leveraging the Quilkin proxy, you can get, get greater reliability with redundant points of communication entry. UDP packets can be sent to any number of proxies and routed to a dedicated game server. And you also get greater security without requiring your IP and your game server uh, to be public. With greater responsive capability, it allows you to break apart the monolith over time and potentially adopt microservices, which I'm sure is the real play here, because that means there are more Kubernetes for all. <laughs> uh, and then the game space would be great, too. Uh, several features of Quicken. Uh, you should be aware of the non-transparent proxying of UDP data, uh, out-of-box metrics inside a cloud monitor, uh, visibility with composable sets of processing filters that can be applied for routing, access control, rate limiting, etc. Flexibility is either standalone binary or with no client-server changes required, or as a Rust library, depending on how deep you want the integration to be, and compatible with C and C++ code bases via the Rust FFI. Uh, multiple integration patterns exist, uh, allowing you to choose the level of integration that you want at the end of the day. I am a huge fan of global optimization, so I love solutions like this. You know, if I'm a game developer, especially if I'm smaller, you know, smaller little office, smaller developer, having to do the security and the access control, and then you know, tr 
usually telemetry metrics come out because you have to, right? And it's like you we, just to get some insight to what's going on. So this is fantastic if they, you know, developers can use this out of the box and there's a common schema that'll drive good patterns and all kinds of good things comes out of solutions like this. So I'm great. I love it. I mean, I, I, the only I, thing I was quickly looking on their website about was, you know, it does say it's still in early stages with this being the 0.1.0 alpha release. Yeah. So I'd be careful about using this in production, obviously. Most games are not never make it to 1.0, so it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How many years did it take Terraform to get to 1.0? Yeah. So, you know. Lots and lots. Yeah, you know, for UDP proxy, though, I, I was surprised that they limited this to just gaming. I mean, I get that there's some undifferentiated heavy lifting they're provided to, providing to you with session management and security and some of that stuff. But, like, just a UDP proxy that scales is something valuable to most companies that are using some legacy protocols. Um, so I'm, I'm actually surprised they're not going to... I wouldn't be surprised to see this kind of expand just a little bit to enable some other UDP use cases in the future. But, you know, day one, I think it's a great, you know, targeted release of something very specific that can be expanded over time. I think it's just because it was done in collaboration with Embark Studios. Sure. from what I'm gathered from the press release, that, like, it was just their way of, you know, having something to launch. Agreed. Well, the ops agent is now generally available. Uh, and it's now it's also leveraging open telemetry in the back end. The new ops agent, uh, which replaces the logging and monitoring agents and simplifies the install management and configuration across the board. Uh, this combined agent approach breaks down boundaries between cloud logging and cloud monitoring, as well as between the OSs. Uh, quick note here to AWS. Will you please uh, take a note look at this? And uh, could you also <laughs> come out with a unified agent for CloudWatch? <laughs> uh, the new features of Ops Agents include a recommended agent and will replace all legacy agents going forward. It is backwards compatible if you don't want to redo your configuration, so you can point that at the new Ops Agent. Uh, it provides higher throughput of logging with FluentD, uh, with help, which helps you avoid out-of-memory errors and prevent data loss. And it features simple YAML-based config for both logs and metrics, bringing greater consistency between tools and Linux Windows distros. And the combined approach means only one agent to download, install, and maintain, and is open source and leverages the open telemetry community in the back end. Uh, you can install this through uh, an Ansible method that they give you out of the box uh, with Puppet and Chef coming very soon, as well as a handy Terraform module that'll help configure this uh, as part of your Terraform code, uh, which Google's a first, Terraform's a first uh, native provider for them. So good to see that there as well. Uh, if you prefer a more managed solution because you can't figure out how to install this, they provide a mechanism to automatically manage the install of the ops agent called Agent Policies, uh, which is in preview today, uh, which will force this agent onto all of your boxes, which is another way to do it uh, if you can't make Terraform or Chef Ansible Puppet work. Yeah, I love seeing the the Terraform module pattern for this. It's it's you know not, a lot of people think of Terraform as straight just infrastructure deployment, and so they you know might not necessarily think to configure you know the grouping and stuff for you know a, a logging agent, but it's equally as powerful for this type of change as well. So this is great. I'm just curious what is actually in the Terraform module if it's just you know an Ansible call to the uh, box that it launches, or is it something you know more in depth or like a bash script that just executes via you know some sort of boot up script or anything along those lines? So I'm actually curious how they actually take that and go that next step and actually leverage Terraform for that. Probably with another agent. <laughs> just agents all the way down, no problem. <laughs> it's probably it's probably built into the G Cloud CLI tools. My guess, and then it looks for the policy. Uh, or the SDKs and looks for the policy, then pulls this down. That's my assumption. But yeah. Play. So would you say, so it potentially uses the, Terraform module uses the agent policies that's in preview to actually install. So maybe it triggers an API to, to that to actually launch. Yeah, that's my guess. 
but I can play with it and let you know. I'll okay. get back to you on this. I will make sure I will call you out on the channel in about three months to say, how does this work? <laughs> Perfect. Three months. Oof. Uh, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but one of the most common uh, command line utilities that I use all the time out of the AWS CLI is uh, S3CP. <laughs> and apparently Google has also noticed that that is one of the most common use cases uh, for GSUtil, uh, which is GSUtil CP, uh, which allows you to move data into a bucket very fast, uh, which is apparently what all people want to do with buckets is fill them very quickly <laughs> with whatever liquid, tasty beverage, or other object you want to put into it. Uh, and you can do multiple ways by breaking up the transfers, parallel, executing them in parallel, uh, GSUtil has been a great tool for that. However, there are situations where GSUtil still fails you uh, and needs tweaking for large files. Single file transfers, you need to change the default settings, get the best performance, etc. And to resolve this, Google is releasing gcloud storage, a new set of storage commands in the cloud SDK that have been engineered to be fast by default. Like GSUtil, gcloud storage takes large files and breaks them down to pieces and takes advantage of all available bandwidth to you. What is new, though, is the parallelization strategy, which treats task management as a graph problem where each unit of work is treated as a node and each dependency as an edge. The strategy allows more work to be done in parallel with far less overhead. And to give you an idea of some of the improvements here, they tested this from an N2D standard dash 16 instance, uh, which is an eight vCPU, 32 gigs of memory box in USC's four uh, with a one 375 gigabit NVMe RAID zero drive. Uh, 100 files of 100 megabytes in size uh, was 79% faster than GSUtil on download and 33% faster on uploads. And for one 10 gig file, uh, it was 94% faster on download and 57% faster on upload, which is pretty impressive improvements if you're trying to move data very quickly. The gcloud storage supports the following features that you use today in gsutil, including recursive uploads and downloads, S3 support, composite uploads, slice downloads, resumable uploads and downloads, listing objects buckets, and removing objects and buckets. Features in preview, and they plan to add more before the GA. Uh, but so far, so good. I think one of the most exciting features of that to me is the resumable upload downloads. I feel like um, over the years, I've, I've helped customers move a lot of data to S3 and made Amazon a lot of money on it. But the resumable uploads, you know, some direct connect gets cut by a backhoe somewhere in the middle of the country or someone's internet goes down and they have to start all over with these, you know, 10, 100 gig files. You know, you're just better off having that ability. And that resumable upload download really should be key for a lot of people with large files. Yeah, that's a nice touch. I do think that this the command for this GSUtil is about four characters too long. That's the only thing that I don't like about it, which I assume it's because GS is already, you know, some 1970s Unix command from something else. But. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, the new the new command is the old one is GSUtil, which I oh, think okay. is, is long. Uh, the new one is GCloud Storage, which is even longer. Oh my god! And if you want to use it right now in the preview phase, it's GCloud Alpha Storage. <laughs> so it's a, it's a bit long, but you can shortcut that at Bash, right? You're, you're, yeah, no, that'll be an alias, which is you know because I don't know how to type, so it's not gonna. It's, I'm not learning now. Tool. Yeah. Exactly. The worst is when you go to a new computer and you have no idea how to use it because none of your aliases are there. Oh, I have all that scripted now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, I've stolen some of your scripts yeah. and added to them for myself. You need to be careful about though because it makes you all of a sudden all your GitHub commits become Ryan Lucas if you're not careful. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> so I think I would prefer little, that. They're a little bespoke uh, to Ryan those scripts, so just be just just a touch. Yeah, just a touch. Especially since the, he merged them into my repo, it was sort of annoying. <laughs> Did I merge those? Oops. I tried yeah. to be selective. Yeah, that's all right. It's all good. 
I think it's better. It all then I can blame Ryan for everything versus myself. That's true. Yeah, the Ryan, the blame is all because I'm become Ryan Lucas instead of me, mm-hmm. which is I'm okay with. But I was already blaming him beforehand, so it's okay. Mm-hmm. But now I have the contributor map to back it up. Right there you go. <laughs> well, Google is extending their trusted cloud with the introduction of the cloud IDS for network-based threat detection, and Google is releasing this in preview to you. The Cloud IDS uh, is extending their trusted cloud with native network-based threat detection capabilities to help you solve your most critical network security challenges. With Cloud IDS, customers can enjoy a Google Cloud integrated experience built with Palo Alto Network's industry-leading threat detection technology to provide high levels of security efficacy. Google has heard from customers that they want an easier path to network threat detection built into the cloud that is easy to deploy and manage. Cloud IDS not only has visibility of traffic to and from the internet, but it also can monitor east-west traffic, which includes both intra- and inter-VPC communications for suspicious lateral movement. In addition to the detection capabilities, Cloud IDS integrates into Splunk, Exabeam, Devo Platform, the PAN, Cortex, XOR, and soon will integrate with Google's Chronicle and Security Command Center tools. Uh, during the preview, you can use the service for free, but it will be billed on a per-hour charge for each Cloud IDS endpoint created and running, as well as a per gigabyte charge based on the total traffic expected once it goes generally available, which could be in a month from now or six months from now. You don't know, so do keep that in mind. If you go enable this really excited and like, hey, I get a free thing, it won't be free forever. I mean, this is really handy for security teams who may not be super mature on cloud, and so this is giving them functionality that they know and love from their existing IDS solutions that exist in the data center without getting really deep into you know virtual networking especially if you're running in multiple clouds. So I can see how this would be a big advantage to a lot of customers. Well, and for customers who want, you know, IDS, network-based intrusion detection, et cetera, you know, it's a big deal to try to route all this traffic through centralized proxies that you're running on top of instances. Um, And how do you scale that for cloud scale? It's very difficult to do. And so if this solution makes that easier for you um, and it's cloud integrated, that's a much better story. So this is, you know, the thing about this, and you find this with a cloud DLP, uh, Cloud Armor, some of the other capabilities that Google's got on the security side, they're really you know, leading the security front at this point in cloud, in my opinion. I think they're way ahead of AWS. Maybe on par with, with Azure, it's just hard to say, because you never know what what's, Azure is just smoke and what is actual uh, working product. Uh, but uh, you know, I I definitely think you know for these problems that are difficult in the on-prem data center, I think Google has good solutions for them, and making them available to you as a cloud service is a big win, and it's a huge differentiator for them. I think you know if people ask me like what do, what would you choose Google for, and I'd be like, well, Kubernetes number one, <laughs> the number two would be uh, security. I think mm-hmm. I think the security stuff, and like this is one more example of a really great security product that solves a real problem that some companies have. Yeah, and this is kind of an interesting because it is a security feature, right? But it's really networking, and and what do you need networking for? Compute, and so like it's it sort of leads itself to to moving more of your workload over there, just because it you know builds these foundational stuff that you need, and you know you can't get anywhere else. So, like yeah, intra VPC, uh, like that's that's very difficult to do on any other cloud provider. Although I don't have first-hand experience with Azure, but with with AWS, you know, routing through Transit Gateway or Direct Connect Gateways is, you know, it's very difficult to actually trace that all the way through and alert on anomalies and other suspicious behavior. So this is pretty cool. Well, what I like about this is, you know, Amazon came out with their, you know, I don't remember what the feature's called this moment, but, you know, they're bumping the wire capability mm-hmm. where they're basically listening to packets, but they didn't give you any solution for that. <laughs> so it was like, you know, here's, yeah, so it gave you the ability to, you know, mirror your entire network uh, to his other, you know, these other ENIs, but then you need to figure out the software and all the technology to make that actually work, uh, which was difficult initially. And then they got partners to kind of 
build to it. And so now you can integrate with a partner pretty easily. But the fact that this is out of the box works. <laughs> and then I can integrate it into all my other security tools. That's a big win. It's mm-hmm. this is one of those areas where the you know, thinking of everything as an API versus thinking of things as a service. <laughs> I think Google's winning on that one in this particular mm-hmm. area, especially in security where you know people are resource constrained. Yeah. I think the integration into all the other partners is also key because you know, everyone has a lot of these tools or one or two of these tools set up, depending on, based on our conversation last time, depending on how many tools your security department decided to implement that week. <laughs> um, and, you know, having this integration right there gives that security, in theory, that single pane of glass of everything going on. And a good security department will be able to kind of look at it and then be able to actually pull relevant information out. So that integration that was done right away, I think, is really critical to everything. Agreed. Well, uh, in Google's effort to continue to kick security's butt, <laughs> they're also enhancing uh, enhancements to Cloud Armor, which is their DDoS and WAF service. Uh, the new capabilities include the preview of Cloud Armor Adaptive Protection, which uses ML to protect your applications and services from Layer 7 DDoS attacks. Uh, you can also try this one out for free in preview. The Adaptive Protection monitors traffic out of band and learns what normal looks like, developing a baseline and updating it on a per-application service basis. When Adaptive Protection identifies and analyzes suspicious patterns, it can provide customized, narrowly tailored rules that mitigate the ongoing attack near real time, which is pretty impressive. Uh, the four new AWS, or sorry, four new WAF rules Solid W and Solid AWS. Uh, four new pre-configured WAF rules and a reference structure to help you protect against the OWASP top 10, including a scanner detection, PHP injection prevention, session fixation, and protocol enforcement, and a new preview release of cloud arm protection for content served from both the cloud CDN or the Google Cloud Storage, uh, as well as a per-client rate-limiting capability all in cloud armor today, which is pretty great. Now I, I wowed you with security. Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> funny because I was, I was just daydreaming a little bit about uh, remembering putting per client rate limiting on a product. And like, this was a, you know, it's a while back. And so there wasn't, you know, any kind of provided solution by uh, providers, but it's pretty difficult to do if you're, once you get above a certain scale. And so it's, it's, it's nice that you can sort of change a config and get it for free or not, not for free, but um, you know, get it built into your existing service. Yeah, I mean, it may, it may be a little bit draconian, though. <laughs> you know, like someone's just clicking your your different web pages trying to get information and then gets blocked, uh, versus you know an actual like web scraping person who's actually scraping. You know, those those patterns look more and more alike sometimes these days. Mm-hmm. Than they look different. So, you know, I, it's one of those things. That it's good to have and it's nice to have. But I, I think the the narrow focus rules actually for adaptive protection is more interesting to me because now I can I can target that rule specifically to you know, this very specific use case that I'm seeing that I'm concerned about. And then even potentially, if you can even present them a different website or redirect their traffic to a website where they, you know, contact support because <laughs> we don't know what you're doing um, is a better experience than, you know, potentially, you know, client rate limiting and then all of a sudden I can't use the website because of a rate limit that I don't know about. Yeah. No, it's true. The user feedback is important there. It is. All right. Well, if you're using private catalog on Google, which is uh, you know our favorite feature of all cloud providers, <laughs> it's basically a service catalog for cloud. Uh, this is the private version of it, which allows you to publish this inside your network, you know, inside of your business or your GCP projects. Uh, and so, if you're using Terraform to deploy management experiences, this is now being integrated into the private catalog. 
Uh, with this new capability, you can update Terraform configurations and keep your end users informed about the updates. At the same time, private catalog users have the ability to view updates, note version highlights, and then update the deployment themselves. This gives you a greater control over managing deployments for solutions provisioned through the private catalog and ensuring compliance with organizational policies and standards. Uh, Terraform Solutions uses cloud-stored object versioning to manage updates to the configuration file, and with this release, you can update configuration by updating the cloud storage object or using a different object that contains a new configuration and updating the config, uh, which is cool because in the, in the demo pictures of this, you see like it actually gives you a GUI <laughs> as, a, as a user that shows you like, hey, you're out of date. There's a new version available. And then when you click into that, it lets you compare the versions, uh, download the configuration to look at, and then make it simple to update to the latest and greatest version. Uh, so for those of you who are providing managed services for your teams uh, via Terraform modules, uh, this may be a great way to keep those up to date and report on them. Yeah, the automatic notifications is, to me, really critical because, you know, people don't realize that you updated a version and fixed the bug. And I feel like when I've worked with people, you know, the, the first thing they say is, hey, we're having this issue. And I'm like, well, you're using a version that's, you know, three hot fixes behind and we found that bug and fixed it. So being able to get that notification already to the end user without me having to, you know, go out there, send emails for everyone to ignore, send Slack messages for everyone to ignore. And then to get that JIRA ticket that says, hey, this, you know, I'm having this issue with X, Y, and Z. And we say, hey, we fixed that already, you know, just should shortcut some of the redundant communication. They're just going to ignore the notification on the GUI, you know, right? Just like the email and the Slack <laughs> There's messages. a hope. Yeah. I, mean, I, I go. I, I have a I'm shocked every time I go into ECS and I look at the host and it says, "Oh, your ECS agent's out of date." I'm like, "Oh, son of a," you know, yeah. like, you know, yes, the notification is there, but uh, you know, the fact that it's now in the console though allows me now to potentially query that with Cloud Monitor or with auditing configuration capabilities, so I can actually get a report now of who's actually not updated to the latest and greatest version into this as well, which I think is good. It's well, good you, material. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you uh, have been frustrated by Google Cloud logging's ability to alert only on error logs uh, or log-based metrics, uh, and you felt that wasn't robust enough, Google has your back this week with a new uh, create logs or create uh, sorry create alerts from your logs available now in preview. Uh, this is a feature that opens alerts to all log types, so you can now spam your Slack rooms with info alerts all day long. Uh, adds new notification channels and helps you make alerts more actionable within a few minutes. Uh, so the first call ability to set alerts on any log type info error. Uh, warning, whatever we want to do that. You can then send those via SMS, email groups, a webhook, PubSub, or Slack. Wait, what? No Google chat services? But whatever Google chat service of the day is, I don't, I don't even know. And then a new metadata field is available to you for your alerts, so you can link directly to the playbook and docs, uh, which helps you resolve these issues much faster uh, and much more quickly, which is fantastic as well. All available to you in preview right now for cloud logging. By the time our listeners listen to this podcast, Google will have announced the end of life for their their Google chat service. <laughs> yes, it's almost weekly at this point, isn't it? This is kind of neat because uh, I've been, you know, I've been playing around with uh, turning logs into metrics a little bit more in my day job. And, um, you know, you, you, you work late enough and you get a little crazy, you start naming your exceptions and, and writing custom air classes just so that you can create custom air classes and and you know so i can see depending on how limiting this is you know with info and you know if they're going to do boring standards you could do that but you know if you could you know customize your own you can alert on threshold cost of exploding cats it's cool i'm actually thinking of like you know somebody doing something fun like put info you know transaction complete and then you know your daily target of you know once you hit a hundred thousand sales of the day and 
you can kind of have that metric, you know, automatically notify. So as soon as you hit that metric, it sends the Slack message saying, we've completed our daily goal of 100,000 transactions. You know, you could do something like that, with, which is fun, with the info logs that you probably wouldn't be doing with the error logs is writing an error log saying transaction complete is like, you know, the error that you get on Windows, like, you know, successfully errored out with the error of successful. So all I heard you say was that you would like us to implement tracing inside of Slack. And so all of our traces would output to a Slack room that would just be constantly spamming me. And then there'd be another job that would basically correlate all those all those Slack-identified rooms and then basically say, this one crossed the threshold and alert me in a different room. So I appreciate you for that. Um, I, you know, This is a very common SRE workload use case of incident rooms tied to master SRE rooms. So yes, thank you for reinventing that once again, Matt. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> No worries. That's why I mute all those Slack channels, so I have to pay attention. Yeah, to them. exactly. So you can feel free to enjoy them. <laughs> if if uh, you know if a webhook fires in a Slack room and no one's there, does does it make a noise? I don't, I don't Depends really on how many emojis are in the payload. There you go. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's take another fantastic break for our sponsors at Jump Cloud. For listeners of the Cloud Pod, you know that I have no love for Microsoft Active Directory which is why I'm excited to tell you about the leading cloud directory platform, JumpCloud. JumpCloud makes it easy to solve today's IT challenges by unifying device and user management through a single pane of glass, enabling you to securely manage your users and devices and perform common tasks like onboarding and offboarding remote workers. With JumpCloud, you no longer need to implement an on-premise Active Directory infrastructure or additional tooling to scope a user's access, and you can ensure that the user is coming from trusted devices and networks. Enabling JumpCloud Zero Trust Solutions improves the security and compliance of your network, ensuring users have access only to the services they need when they need them. To start your organization's move to a modern, secure hybrid work model, try JumpCloud for free today at cloud.jumpcloud.com slash thecloudpod. That's cloud.jumpcloud.com slash thecloudpod. Moving on north to Redmond for Azure News of the Week. Uh, They had the virtual Inspire conference. Uh, Inspire is the Microsoft Partner Conference, which is why we don't talk about it here typically. Uh, But they they did have several items uh, that we should touch base on. Uh, So first up is they're announcing the uh, brand new Azure Migration and Modernization Program, or AMP, AMP for short, which is an evolution of the Azure Migration Program, or AMP, AMP versus AMP helps enterprises assess how their on-premise workloads will help perform and cost on Azure, complementing offerings like smart defaults for AKS and Azure API management integration with EventGrid. Uh, they're also announcing that their Windows 365 Cloud PC, a new service that makes Windows 10 and 11 cloud instances available to organizations and individuals with apps, data, and settings that persist across both sessions and devices, is generally available. Of course, the service is built on top of Azure Virtual Desktop, which is the exact same thing. However, Windows 365 is supposed to make it simpler by handling many of the complicated aspects of setting up Azure Virtual Desktop, which, I mean, that product just came out a year and a half ago, and it's so complicated that you needed a new product to make it less complicated that you then bundled into Office 365. I mean, that's a rough, rough day right there. I'm too busy trying to think of other M's I can throw in the in the acronym. Oh, yes. <laughs> the Migration Manipulation and Modernization Program. The, you know. Uh, the, um, migration Management Modernization. Mm-hmm. Modeling Modernization. We can make this really long. Azure Money Migration Program. <laughs> <laughs> and more yes. money modern, uh, modernization. We can get all kinds of M's in there. Yeah. It's not the lightning round, guys. Come on. <laughs> I mean, the Azure section can sometimes be the lightning round. 
especially when we're talking about partner <laughs> offerings. Uh, the next article up this week from Azure was uh, all about accelerating your Azure migration and modernization journey with expanded programs and offers. Uh, and then the first part of that article is about AMP, which we just talked about. So we'll skip that. But they did mention here this article that you are using SQL 2008 R2 or SQL 2012. Uh, you can get extended support and security updates only via Azure. Uh, with an additional free year over the current end of life for 2008 R2 if you leverage the AMP migration services. So there you go. One more That's one a, more way to get you to move. Support for your end of life operating system. That is a pretty funny carrot on that stick. Like that, you know, like, hey, we're this hilariously old operating system. We'll still support you. <laughs> Just got to move your workload over here. <laughs> yeah, you just got to pay us through the nose for a monthly so we can support it and afford to pay for the dev team to keep it working. Yeah. Because we arbitrarily decided to kill the product because we're Microsoft. Yeah, it's great. I don't know what arbitrarily doesn't. It, I mean, if 2008, I, I forget when R2 was released, but, you know, it's got to be coming out. It's, it's coming now, up 10 years right? old at this point. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's out there. Well, uh, of course, this is the Inspire Conference, which means they're trying to unveil more opportunities for their partners to make money. And so your partners will be coming to you soon to talk to you about uh, Microsoft Cloud for Sustainability, uh, which will help partners and customers across all industries meet their carbon reduction and sustainability goals. Available in preview later this year, organizations will be able to record, report, and reduce their emissions on the path to net zero. Uh, And then Microsoft has apparently also increased their commitment uh, for this new plan called the 100-100-0 plan which by 2030 will have Microsoft having 100% of electricity consumption 100% of the time matched by zero carbon energy purchases. Which, yay. So, I mean, coming out of COVID, coming out of those really bad depression of economic situation we have, staring into inflation, if your biggest business priority is sustainability and tracking your sustainability goals, um, I applaud you. I, I mean, like, Thank you for doing that, especially with the fact that we're in record heat waves and record global warming issues. Uh, but I'm not sure that's the best way for your partners to make more money at this immediate moment. But I do appreciate the effort and consideration for Microsoft that they're trying to do something, uh, even though, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's just, you know, we're going to pay for putting out much carbon into the, in, into the atmosphere and you get the benefit of us paying for that zero carbon match at the end of the day. Yeah, it's the partner angle is the only part I don't quite understand this. I do think it's a great move by Microsoft um, to move towards, you know, sustainability, uh, especially, you know, cloud computing is such a huge impact on our environment. But yeah, offering the the ability for partners to visualize it and report on it, I'm a little confused by. Maybe there's something I don't quite understand about that ecosystem where that makes sense. But hopefully, you know, Reducing carbon. And I mean, I guess if you're a SaaS partner, system. if you're a company and you're saying, I want to buy only carbon neutral products, and then I have a SaaS product like, I don't know, Dynamics 365 that I have that I is running on top of Microsoft, I need that product to also be zero carbon emissions compliant too. So I need to be able to report from Dynamics 365 that they're compliant so then I can be compliant because it all rolls up at the end of the day, right? That's the only reason why I can think that you want this for the partner network. Uh, but you know, maybe there's something missing. If someone knows uh, or what we're missing, or the, you know, there might be some minutia here we're not quite familiar with. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. So please email Ryan at thecloudpod.net mm-hmm. and complain to him about this. But uh, you know, we do appreciate your feedback because we, we, you know, we are <laughs> we are trying to be better citizens as well, just like everyone else. And uh, you know, so I, I do like to know how these things apply to us and how we, we make it make sense and help you guys make sure it makes sense too. 
Well, for uh, things that you know only make sense in the world of SAP HANA <laughs> and very large SQL servers, uh, shared disks on Azure Disk Storage are now generally available on all premium SSD and standard SSD sizes. So this is one of those features you don't have to go the premium route to not get fired for. Uh, you do get this on the standard size, which is always great. Shared disks provide a shared block storage to Windows and Linux-based clusters or distributed applications run your most demanding enterprise apps like cluster databases, parallel file systems, stateful containers, and machine learning apps. So I guess it's nice. Uh, I, I don't have a use case for this either. Uh, I wish I did. That'd be cool. But, uh, you know, I'd rather keep my containers stateless. Yeah. I mean, I can think of lots of uses. I'm just too afraid to try it. Cause it seems like anything. I, like That seems scary. Yeah, anytime you get into parallel file systems and cluster file systems awareness and you're, you know, you start talking about some of these like, weird solutions from, uh, what was the one for Oracle on top of Linux uh, from Seagate? That was always a little bit weird. <laughs> there's, there's all kinds of weird technologies out there for this kind of stuff to make sure you don't accidentally blow up your file system, which you can do really easily when multiple boxes are accessing it at the same time. I think whenever somebody starts to talk to me about these, I'm like, let's sit, take a step back and figure out why exactly these are needed and make sure they're like, what we're implementing is the right solution. Mm-hmm. Because 90% of the time people are like, oh, we need this thing because we've been doing it this way for 20 years. And I'm like, but you've been doing that way for 20 years. There might be something new that came out in the last 20 years that we can leverage. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of company, you know, that product was built by a company that only existed 20 years ago, and that's a key part of your business, and it only works on clustered file systems. I need an option to move it to the cloud. I don't have a choice. So it's, uh, you know, although I, you know, that company's out of business for 20 years and you haven't moved off of it. That's some tech debt for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, for those of you who are all excited about next generation firewall capabilities, uh, they are now available to you, generally available, of the Azure Firewall Premium offering. Uh, this provides a next-generation firewall capability for highly sensitive and regulated environments. And with the GA, the following capabilities are made available to you, including TLS inspection for man-in-the-middle TLS inspection, IDPS, uh, or intrusion detection and prevention systems, uh, built-in web categorizations to block uh, you know, certain web categories, as well as URL filtering uh, on whitelist, blacklist-based uh, enablement, which is quite nice. Uh, so we talked about this when it came out in preview, that it doesn't seem like premium features to me, really, other than maybe the IDPS. Uh, but the you know, and the TLS, but I wish the web categories and URL filtering would make it to the standard firewall someday in the future because I think those are good features in general for any uh, shop out there. Yeah, don't upsell security. Yeah, yeah. I always get a little bit frustrated with all these people that are like, "Oh, all these extra security features are extra." It's like the SSO tax, where I feel like some of these things just need to be standard to get the world security level, you know, more and more up. <laughs> Kasha Corp. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well that is it uh peter peter's not here so matt you're once again on the hook for lightning round three weeks in a row i'm sorry you poor poor, poor. i know and this time it's 10 40 at night so we'll see how well i can actually manage yeah this yeah well you know we did cut it down from 20 <laughs> items originally when we went through the show notes so you know we did at least help you out with that uh, i don't know how many we came up to now but uh, it's at least better than it was when we started I dramatically appreciate that, um, but I will do my best to keep you guys on your toes. So therefore, we'll start with new AWS solutions implementation, simple file manager for Amazon EFS. There you go, using that word again, simple. I'm not sure I'm so sure you know what that word means. Because <laughs> when you look at that diagram, that is not a simple solution in any way. But it is nice. I, I mean, it's a great feature. Like I, I applaud the solution effort. Just calling it simple is a misnomer. <laughs> 
Yeah, doesn't this have a, it has its own UI and orchestration? Like yeah, uh, and I, like yeah. a bajillion Lambda functions and stuff functions that interact with each other and Aurora databases and Dynamo. Like it, I mean, it's it's a quite the diagram. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a it's a good solution though if you're looking for some way to manage files on EFS, I'd recommend it. Yeah, Amazon System Manager automation now supports upgrade of SQL Server 2012. Or you could just use RDS and get there without having to do all this rigmarole of Systems Manager automation. The only way I will update my SQL Server is if you could make this stupid thing do it for me. Challenge accepted. Nice work. Do you really want to automate Microsoft SQL 2012? Have you tried before? I mean, the alternative is me doing it. So yeah, what could go wrong? I mean, your, your confidence in Systems Manager automation to do this work is higher than mine. So Fire and forget. Success is not my criteria. You, you, until the until the pager goes off three hours later, and you're like, "Oh, that thing I forgot about is not going so well." That's unfortunate. We've, we are now out of the maintenance window, and we haven't started step one. AWS CloudFormation now supports more stacks per AWS account. <laughs> now we're getting to the point where we'll have so many stacks that uh, we'll just keep overriding each other's changes. <laughs> so, yeah. like, you know, Ryan will set the firewall group to this, and then my CloudFormation will set the rule back to something else, and then he'll be like, what the hell? Like, why did this go away? And he'll reapply his CloudFormation. Like, it's just going to be back and forth all day long. It's going to be awesome. Mm-hmm. So I've decided the trick, though, though I will make my stack, or I will make uh, the output of my stack dependent on your stack, and so therefore... You know, you won't be able to update without me updating. Because that's I mean, how I'm you assuming that you can find my CloudFormation stack that's screwing you in the 2,000 stacks that I now support. So Ooh, hadn't thought of that. Yeah. So so I, I expect a future a future feature to be you know how to link these things together so you can find out which CloudFormation stack is stepping all over you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we don't give you guys nice that's things. True. Exactly. Yeah. Amazon EC2 now supports custom time windows for. Scheduled How many events. different ways can we come up with maintenance windows? Scheduled events, maintenance windows, maintenance windows for System Solutions Manager. Like, can we just come up with one, and can we just stick with it, please? Yeah, I mean, this is you know, this is they're going to reboot your server because they're retiring the hardware. It's got some sort of thing, and now they're just letting you pick a time. But, but nice. oh, like, why use a custom time window? Why not you just use the maintenance window you've already specified? <laughs> like, if it's in this custom maintenance window that I've already declared, you should be able to just use that for your support. Like, why I need a? Why do I need something different? Two peaks about the, you know, Then the outage happens because this goes down, and then I have to write the RCA. And in the RCA, I have to say. Due to uh, you know Amazon feature related to custom time windows that were different from our maintenance window schedule, this server rebooted in the middle of the production day, and I am so sorry for you. And then the customer goes, "You're an idiot. <laughs> How could you let that happen?" And then I have to eat crow in a in a call with the executives, which is terrible. So I hate everything about this. The alternative is that it's still going to reboot just some random ass time now. Well, I mean, randomly rebooting for no good reason. Like that's a, that's a much better story, almost. than I, there's a thing I didn't know about <laughs> this custom time windows that don't match my maintenance windows. <laughs> Feels like you've had some pain around yeah. this in the past. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> scars run deep. Amazon LightSail now offers object storage for static storage. Not even again. no. Try again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this this play you're making of like, we're going to randomize the order of lighting round. It's really working out well for you. I, I'm enjoying every bit of it. <laughs> hey, if I'm going to rate you guys, I got to rate myself too. So I got to keep myself on my toes. Amazon LightSail now offers object storage for storing static. So you're saying they don't know who their market is for LightSail, which is VPS customers who don't use object storage. Why would you use object storage if you can just, you know, throw that into a React app? 
Yeah, you just throw it onto the disk of the light cell VPS instance. Mm-hmm. Why do I need? Why do? Why mm-hmm. obfuscate my storage from my compute? I don't understand. Mm-hmm. And not that you couldn't do this before. Before, because you could just set up CloudFront and S3, and then just tell your app to use the static website, you know, through CloudFront. But you know, yeah, so you know, let's do it this way instead. It makes sense. I assume it's actually S3 and CloudFront under the hood. This is just offering it up in the light cell interface. Yeah, exactly. Hundred percent. But I still am annoyed by it. Mm-hmm. AWS RoboMaker WorldForge now supports adding doors to indoor residential simulation worlds. And you wonder what were they simulating before? They didn't have doors. Like, come on. Like, so we're training the robots to open doors. Like, so before at least they could only kill me outside in the robot apocalypse, but now well, they get, they get through the first door. So apparently they can get through the outdoor, you know, the outdoor door. Cause that one was there. But then, you know, if you were behind another door inside your house, you were safe. Now you're not. Yeah. I'd be hiding in my panic room. So I have a family friend that has told me multiple times, the best safe, best place to be is on a boat in the ocean, but not anchored because zombies can climb up the anchor chain. So you just got to float endlessly. It depends ocean. on which zombie rules we're playing by. If they can swim or float or walk underwater. Like that's, it's all about which, which zombie apocalypse are you in? Are you in The Walking Dead? Are you in you know, World, Worldwide Z? Like What are you in? And then you figure that out. And in any case, the rules of boating are constant, which is boats are just holes in water that you throw money into. So it's a very expensive way to live out the apocalypse. <laughs> well, there's no one to 100%. spend money with to keep throwing money at. So your only choice is a sailboat. Because then it's wind powered at least, and then you can fish hopefully for food. That's your only two options in that scenario, which is my zombie apocalypse plan. So I'm disappointed that you just brought that up, but it's okay. Added <laughs> him. All right, well, let's go on to new topics. So outside of Justin's, you know, very secret zombie apocalypse plan about Mark's individual best practices as not applicable within the AWS well-architected. Great. Tool. So all the things that are now handled by my cloud platform engineering CCOE team, I can now mark taken care of and then there's really no reason to do the well-architected meeting with Amazon mm-hmm. because there's nothing to talk about because they only care about the things that the cloud CCOE handles anyways and not the actual app architecture. Yeah, coming soon to show notes on a future episode, we'll have our custom well-architected tool where we've just marked all the things in app for you. Yeah. Perfect. You have 100% completed <laughs> then. Yeah, so annoying though because I do these meetings and, and the Amazon rep would be like, hey, you need to do the meeting. I'm like, Why? You're talking to the product team, and they're like, well, there's a bunch of questions they don't, can't answer. I get there, like, what's your security group policy? What's your tagging strategy? I'm like, oh, you're killing me. <laughs> How do you access the, you know, console? Yeah, it's I go through the same thing. It's awful. Welcome to, you know, go look at the six other well-architected framework reviews completed in the account and reference yep. those. So they can't access those because of Amazon's draconian security measures so that their TAMs can't access their own account information unless there's a ticket. So... Going on to better integration between Azure Monitor and Grafana. <laughs> and all I can hear is uh, Steve Bomber going, no, we have a monitoring tool. Don't use Grafana. <laughs> Open source is evil. But Grafana is shiny. You can do really cool dashboards in Grafana. I mean, Satch is all about that. Bomber, not so much. Yeah. <laughs> Did uh, Microsoft just release their Linux distro last week? I don't know if it, what week it is, uh, where I think I, the first thing I saw in there was, you know, somebody quoting Bomber saying Linux is, you know, evil. And now Amazon or now, sorry, Microsoft released their Linux distro that helps run you know, their own cloud. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about it. I No. They didn't, blog, they didn't blog about it. <laughs> so I don't have it in the show. It's a fever dream that Matt had. <laughs> I'm saying Microsoft Linux. It's highly possible. <laughs> I, I do think there was some talk about them building something. 
but I think that was a while ago. Oh, two days ago, they quietly released their own Linux distro. Well, there you go. There you I go. had no idea. Yeah, I remember them talking about doing this a while See? ago, kind of around when they did the subsystem for Linux. Uh, but uh, they've finally done it, so good for them. Wow. Announcing the availability of Red Hat Enterprise Linux with Microsoft SQL Surfer on Amazon EC2. So this is for the company that didn't realize the whole reason of moving to Linux for your SQL Server workload was to avoid licensing fees. You can now add licensing back to your Linux version of uh, Microsoft SQL Server. So here you go. You're welcome. Oh, those poor Red Hat support engineers. Oh, my God. That would be awful. <laughs> Azure App Service Migration Assistant PowerShell-based Oh, experience. is Amazon giving their commissions to Azure now? Because making me use PowerShell for my migration is going to make me run right back to AWS or Google real, real quick. <laughs> you just install this commandlet and just remember <laughs> that everything's an object. You'll be fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> All right. Well, I think this week I may have to give the uh, point to Justin for his uh, pain and suffering that he's experienced around EC2 and custom time windows. I think on, uh, I'm also going to have to demote Peter a point because you missed one and you're jumping all around. And yep, you did. Oh, I hate it. You're right. Yeah. I did. Amazon Lex launches support for Indian English. Which I was super excited about. I was like, "Oh, I'm gonna use the I'm gonna use the soundboard. I'm gonna go out there. I'm gonna I'm gonna do something funny and have it in an Indian English accent." And then I realized, "Oh yeah, Lex is the chatbot, and I don't really care about this feature anymore." <laughs> right. But I'm glad. I'm you know for all of our Indian listeners, I'm super happy that now Lex chatbots will not misunderstand you. Mm-hmm. In theory, so in theory, also your Alexa should be better. So if your Alexa suddenly improved in its ability to understand you as an Indian uh, English speaker. Uh, you can thank this Lex feature. Or if it gets better in the next few months, you now know they're adopting this Lex feature. So there you go. Yeah, I had also written jokes for Transcribe. Not Lex. Yeah. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> just showing you how confusing all of the amazing products that uh, Amazon has. <laughs> you know, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for the point. I appreciate it. Uh, and I do appreciate that it was off of that painful story I recanted to you about having to explain <laughs> <laughs> An outage caused by Amazonian yeah. garbage at the end of the day. So, well, there are. But I am perfectly okay with you know Ryan deducting Peter a point because it is the lightning round and all, all rules, rules are, are open, open, especially so. for the you know the host of the lightning round. You you mm-hmm. are more than welcome to do that. And you know I, you know I question yeah. now that you've done this three times. I think you've mastered it better than Peter has after three episodes. Um, so you know you gave him a point originally for his his ability to read them properly, and I think you've surpassed him now after three short episodes. And so you know I don't think he deserves that point to begin with. That's how I feel about well, it. all right. Well, yeah. there we go. We'll see. We'll start changing the topics and and see what he can do with you know MongoDB compatibility. Oh yeah, still still oh, a couple no. hurdles. Or you know we, we <laughs> can start adding you know random words into the things like we used to do with Peter too. That was always fun. <laughs> all right. As long as it's not eleven o'clock at night. I- might be able to do it, but if it's 11 o'clock, the odds are not with yeah, me. I'm not making any promises. Well, uh, for things coming up this week, I'm not even going to mention the Google Cloud Summits uh, because by the time this episode drops, it'll already be over. So we won't even talk about that. But uh, those security ones we talked about earlier did come out of the security summit uh, yesterday. Uh, so too, there, are, there are real things, I promise, uh, that have value to people who are in these different ecosystems to check those out. And they have not updated the blog post to give us other new things. And so we, uh, we'll just stop talking about that one. <laughs> so there you go. 
The AWS Reinforce is still coming up very soon on August 24th to 25th in Houston, Texas, or streaming online live to you. But if you know security is not really your thing, uh, AWS has given you the pleasure of scheduling the AWS Summit online for Americas on the exact same day. So you don't have to attend the Reinforce, you can attend the Summit. And so there you go. Uh, I don't know what that means about their confidence in Reinforce, <laughs> that they now... Uh, you know, they now put Reinforce and re- the Summit on top of each other. Uh, but, you know, that, that's where we are at in this world. AWS reInvent, of course, is coming up November 29th through December 3rd. And then last week we talked about KubeCon coming up in October 11th through the 15th. And HashiConf coming up October 19th through the 22nd. And Sarah, our friendly security officer, uh, told us about SNICs uh, or Sneak or whatever we talked about. I don't remember what we agreed on last week. Uh, October 5th through 7th for a virtual conference. That's free, all available to you. And that is it for things coming up this week in the cloud. Have a good rest of your week, guys, and we'll see you, well, maybe not Matt, or maybe Matt, last minute, uh, next week here at the Cloud Pod. Just give me more than 10 minutes notice. We'll try. We'll try. Nope. No deal. (laughs) Have a good one, guys. Bye, everybody. And that is the week in the cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Foghorn Consulting and Jump Cloud. Check out our website, the home of the Cloud Pod, where you can join our newsletter, Slack team, and send feedback or ask questions at thecloudpod.net or tweet us with the hashtag thecloudpod. Cloud Pod.